James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. Here's the word of the Lord. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? May the Lord add his blessing to the reading today. And we're hitting just the, coming to the end of chapter 4 today. And I wonder if many of you have noticed this, but when you're studying the book of James, it's, it's possible for one to read through it as if it were just a list of rules, or, or maybe even a series of rants. <laughs> but if we read it that way, we've really made a sad mistake. We, we've really missed what's at the core of this letter. James is a pastor. He's an old, wise pastor, and he's writing to Christians, and he wants to help us know how to walk out our faith. He wants to help us to know how to live out of the faith that we profess in Jesus Christ. And so as we come to his word today, I'm going to invite you to open up to James chapter 4, verse 11, and I'm going to pray for us as we jump into this word. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your constant care for us, your church. We thank you that, that you have, you've bought us at such a great price. We have every reason to believe with full confidence that you will give us everything we need. You will always guide us. You will always provide for us. And so we ask that today you would provide for us and guide us through these short verses. Lord, would you open up our hearts to receive your truth and ask that the words of my mouth and that the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. That's what James is telling us here. The question for us, of course, is do we do this? Do we speak evil against one another, against brothers and sisters? And to, and to answer that question, we really need to know what it means in the first place, don't we? According to James, to speak evil against one another, it means, at least in part, that we judge each other. We judge each other. Some English Bibles put it this way. They, 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 they translate it, do not defame one another, or, or do not criticize one another. The most literal translation here would be, do not speak against. Do not speak against one another. And, and these are words, what he's referring to are words that don't help. They hurt. They hurt relationships. They hurt reputations. They hurt the community. The NIV, or the New International Version, that translation of the Bible that some of you maybe are using here today, it's the, it's the version of the Bible that's sitting in that rack in front of you in the pew. The NIV reads, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Slander. That's a, that's a good word, but it, slander really means to make false statements, doesn't it? False damaging statements. But the words that James is talking about here, they don't need to be false. All they have to do is be damaging. They might be 100% true, but, but the spirit behind these words 
is not love. In fact, whether we realize it or not, there's an evil in these words. This kind of speaking, it, it could take the form of slander, could look like gossip, it, it could look like veiled criticism. It could look like just passing swipes that you make at someone in conversation. It can take so many different forms. But here's what's consistent about all these different forms of speaking evil against each other. In your heart, whether you realize it or not, and maybe in subtle ways in your heart, you are positioning yourself against and not for that person. In the next sentence, what does James say? He refers to the the one who judges his brother. So, so you see, this kind of speaking against one another, it's, it's evaluating and passing judgment from a place of superiority. It's judgmental talk is what James is referring to here. And remember, he's, he's writing the Christians, isn't he? He says, brothers, sisters. So, brothers and sisters, can, can we relate to any of this? Doesn't, doesn't this kind of talk actually come really natural to us? That, that impulse to, to speak negatively about certain people, to highlight their failures, to pick up on people's weaknesses, doesn't that come natural? To remember and, and then to rehearse their sins, their flaws, it's natural, no? And, and I mean, some of us may be a little better at it, maybe we're more gifted, I say that sarcastically, in, the, in this area, or, or maybe you've just honed your skills a little bit more, but it's an impulse that we all know. Sadly, it's, it's sometimes, in so many cases, the common reality in, in marriages, where instead of gratitude being verbalized, instead of gratitude, it's, it's, it's criticism. Instead of appreciation, spouses will keep a, a detailed record of wrongs, where, where, where they can then point out the shortcomings of their spouse again and again. Sadly, it's what Christian parenting sometimes looks like. Harsh, critical judgment. Moms and dads were rehearsing the ways that you've been disappointed by your kid. The ways that, that, reminding your child of the ways that they haven't measured up. Reading through this forced me to ask a question. I think we can all ask it. What's life in your household look like? What characterizes the conversations in your home? Is it more about encouragement? Reminding one another of, of the love that you have for them? Reminding one another of God's promises? Is it that kind of a stirring one another up to, to love and to good works? Or it more, is it more about where you've let me down, where you haven't measured up? I was reminded this week that we all have a set number of chances to speak to and about the people in our lives. And we don't know how many chances we have. The Bryant family probably didn't realize, I'm talking about Kobe Bryant, his wife Vanessa, their children, didn't realize just a week ago today 
that they would not have another chance to speak to one another and about one another. You have a set number of words to speak to your brother and to your sister, to your child and to your spouse. And you don't know how many words you have. One of those words will be your last words. You don't know which one. I don't know what the Bryant family talked about last Sunday morning or what the other families represented on that helicopter that crashed a week ago, what they were talking about. But certainly none of them had any idea that they were speaking their final words to each other. How many times have we wasted opportunities to encourage, to remind each other of our love because instead we've gone the easy route to criticize, to find fault, to remind each other of our flaws. Back in chapter 3, James writes about the power of words. And we saw there that, that he wasn't just referring to the words that come out of our mouth. These words, they can be communicated in different ways. In fact, sometimes these words, they, they, the only people we share these judgmental words with is sometimes ourselves. Isn't it true that sometimes some of our harshest criticisms, they aren't even spoken out loud? They might just stay right here in our heads, at least at first. We criticize others in our minds, in our hearts, so that before I've ever talked about you, I've already been talking about you to myself. In those private inner conversations where we cultivate a sense of disappointment with people, bitterness towards people, in our family, in our church, wherever. It could be in our office. And the more we cultivate that critical spirit, the more it poisons us. Over time, what is it? it? It erodes our ability to see the good in other people. It, it erodes our ability to appreciate others' strengths because we become so skilled at seeing their flaws. It's what happens. It, it happens always. Just give it time. If you're cultivating that critical spirit, just give it time, and it will turn you into a full-time fault finder, a professional critic. After all, it's a habit of mind, isn't it, to criticize. And once that habit is formed, we automatically start looking for faults. It becomes your go-to response. When someone disappoints you, you immediately begin to pick out their many flaws, to speak against them to yourself and then maybe to someone else, maybe to a trusted confidant, maybe to your family, maybe to your spouse. And that habit, that, that habit of criticism, it forms so quickly, so easily. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's so hard to stop being critical of certain people? The easy answer is, well, because we're sinners, and that's what sinners do. But I think we need to dig deeper than that. For, for one thing, here's one reason that we so quickly become critics and so easily fall into that pattern. It's, it's because it doesn't take much effort. It's easy. 
We're, we're surrounded by sinners, first of all, and those people are bound to disappoint you. And plus, it doesn't cost you anything to criticize, does it? You're not coming to help. You're not showing mercy. That stuff is costly. That's hard. But, but criticism is cheap. And it's always a lot easier than confronting your own failures, isn't it? Think about this. Most of us are probably willing to admit that we're not perfect, at least in general terms. Like, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've got flaws. I think we'd all say that in general. But when it comes to criticizing that other person, we will be painstakingly specific. I mean, I mean I'm not blameless, but you? Let, let's open up the files. Let's open up the scroll, because I've got a detailed list here with, with specific examples and dates. Because it takes such little effort to speak against one another. It's too easy. And on top of that, it's immediately rewarding. It feels good. Because it injects us with this, this immediate sense of righteousness. I feel better about myself when I highlight your sins in my thoughts, in my words. Focusing on someone else's faults, whether you realize it or not, in that very moment, it helps you feel better about yourself. And that's part of why we do it. Some of you might remember the Jerry Springer show. For a while in the, in the early 2000s, the Jerry Springer show was the highest rated daytime program. You know why? I have a theory why. Because the guests on that show were a mess. Because every single episode, there would be fights, there would be these embarrassing revelations. These guests, their personal lives were a disaster. And they were such a disaster that almost anyone could watch and say, well, I'm, I'm not doing so bad in life. I mean, I'm not perfect, but, but I'm feeling better about my choices today as I look at these people unraveling on stage in front of an audience. You see, observing their faults, focusing on the faults of others, it elevates our, our sense of worth. At the very least, it's a distraction from our own brokenness, but, but usually it helps us feel better in comparison. And that's what's going on when we speak evil against one another. In those moments, they become smaller and we become bigger. They are falling short and you're not. They look bad, and all of a sudden you look a little better. So no wonder we lapse so naturally into criticism. No wonder we judge each other. That's not the only thing we're doing, though, when we speak against one another. We're not just judging each other. James pushes in deeper. He says, we're actually judging God. We're judging God. Look at, look at what he says here in James 4, verse 11. We'll read again. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, listen, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. 
You see, he drills deeper into what's really going on when we judge one another. And it's a, it's a fascinating observation, really. He says, when you judge other people, you're actually judging God's law. Back in, in, in chapter 2, verse 8, James talks about the royal law. He calls it the royal law. And he, what he's talking about is the, the law of Jesus. Jesus is king, and here's the law of his kingdom. And what is the law of, this, of his kingdom? Back in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, it's to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus says the very same thing in Matthew 22. He says, that's the law of my kingdom. Love one another. Then he, then he presses into that in John 13 and John 15. Look what Jesus says. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is how we're called to operate in the kingdom of God. We're called to love others, and, and, and more than that, to love others in the way that Jesus has loved us. So James wants us to, to see that when we lapse into criticism and judgment of each other, we are actually rejecting that law. We are deciding that at least for now, in this moment, I will not love. We might claim we're loving, but God knows better. He knows that in your heart, you are choosing not to love, but to judge instead. Because in that moment, the call to love, as we've been loved, that is to love with mercy, to love with sympathy, to love with self-sacrifice and patience, in that moment, that sounds like a bad idea to us. So we refuse to, to incarnate the love of God towards that person right now. Rather than, than do that law, we judge that law. We decide that that law is unreasonable. At least right now it is. It's, it's naive. It, it's unrealistic. We evaluate that law and we say, nah, nah. And, and in doing so, we reject the wisdom of God's law. And listen, in doing that, we reject the wisdom of God himself. You see, when we're rejecting God's law, it's because it's not wise right now. I don't want to obey that right now. It doesn't seem like it makes sense for me to walk out that out right now. We are rejecting the wisdom of our king himself who gave us the law. We judge him to be unwise. You see, in those moments when we begin to, to go down that road of criticism, whether it's in our minds or coming out of our mouths, those, we believe that those fault-finding remarks are wise. We, we believe that, that my exacting criticism is wise. That's what this person needs right now. They need to hear about all the ways they've let me down. They need to hear about all the ways they are no good, all the ways that they have failed. That's what's wise. And when we've done that, we've judged the wisdom of God. And what we've actually done is we've adopted a wisdom that does not come from God, a wisdom that does not come down from above, but is, what does James say, earthly unspiritual, demonic. You see, our criticizing words, they, they, they're, they're coming from some kind of wisdom, but it's not God's wisdom. It's a wisdom of the world that says, you live up to my standards or I will tear you down, I will cancel you. It's earthly. It's also unspiritual, James says, because it, it does no one any spiritual good, including you. It doesn't do us any spiritual good. And he says it's demonic. It's demonic because it mimics Satan. This is what Satan does. Satan loves to criticize. He is 
the consummate critic. He is the accuser. And he loves to heap condemnation on people. Just to be clear, James is not saying that it's wrong to to honestly address sin in someone's life. Sometimes that's the most loving thing that you can do. But listen to how author Paul Tripp puts it. He says, James is not arguing that it's wrong to bring an honest, loving assessment based on God's word. He's not saying it's wrong to hold up the mirror of God's word to help someone see. But James is pointing out something else. Something that's not motivated by love. It's not patient. It's not helpful. It's more insidious than that, and it's evil. Douglas Moo puts it this way. He says he's a, he's a scholar and commentator on the book of James. He says, James is not prohibiting the proper and necessary discrimination that every Christian should exercise. Nor is he forbidding the right of the community to exclude from its fellowship those it deems to be in flagrant disobedience to the standards of the faith or to determine right and wrong amongst its members. James rebukes jealous, censorious speech by which we condemn others. You know, James confronts sin in this letter, doesn't he? In a pretty straightforward way. But what he's doing here is not condemning. In fact, what James is doing here is full of grace, and it's motivated by love. In fact, at the very end of this letter, the very last thing that he tells us, at the end of James chapter 5, he tells us that if someone is wandering, someone among us in our community is wandering from the truth, wandering down a, a, a dangerous path of sin, he says it's an act of love to, to bring that person back, to, to redirect him. That, that's not condemning. But James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is warning us about the kind of talk that is self-serving. It's shaming. It's divisive. And he's warning us, in part he's warning us, because God knows how often we frame our criticism as if it is loving when it really isn't. We say, hey, look, I'm just speaking the truth in love right now. And maybe we even believe that but it's really an outworking of the wisdom that comes. It's really not an outworking of the wisdom that comes down from above. We want to believe it's okay. We want to justify ourselves. So we say, look, I'm just being honest. I'm just saying. James calls that out. He calls it out because he says it's rooted in arrogance. It's rooted in self-righteousness, regardless of how we might kind of try to dress it up. So what you might call honest discernment, James may call speaking evil against one another. How can we tell the difference? It's really all about the heart, isn't it? It's all about the motives. But you know that our heart and our motives are, are so hard to determine sometimes, let alone try to determine the heart and the motives of someone else. How do you know? Are they just trying to be helpful? Are they taking swipes? Are they trying to actually build up? Or are they 
trying to tear down. How can you tell? My go-to answer in situations like this, the way I say it is, we have to ask, what's the pattern and what's the fruit? What's the pattern and what's the fruit? So in your life, do some people never seem to be good enough? And that's a pattern in your life. Are your standards just never met? Just hard to please. Are some people always falling short of your reasonable, quote-unquote, expectations? What's the pattern in your life? And then the next question, what's the fruit? Like, what's resulting from the way that you view and talk about those people? What's resulting from it? Is the result long-lasting, healthy relationships? Is the result more prayer for that person? Deeper intimacy with that person? Is the, is the fruit a, a willingness to, to see good in them? Like trying to see good in them. In your life, as a pattern, what kind of fruit has come from the criticism? Has it fostered peace, unity, a deeper love among brothers and sisters? Or has it actually drove, driven people away from you and from each other? Has it brought what James calls disorder, broken relationships? New Hope, our God is calling us to love each other in the same way that he has loved us. And, and as, as mon- monumental a task as that is, He is patiently calling us towards that kind of love, and he's given us his Holy Spirit, and he says, abide in me, and I will teach you to love this way. But what we cannot do, what we cannot do is reject his wisdom and say, I prefer to judge. Now, we were talking earlier about what, why it is that it's so easy for us to speak critical words. And I think for many of us, part of the reason might be because we brought up an environment where there's just lots of criticism. Maybe you were brought up to view people critically. Maybe your parents had very high standards that you could never keep, I mean, that you could never meet. You never could quite live up to their expectations. They criticized you. And maybe they criticized other people outside your family, and you heard that. You grew up kind of taking that in, and you learn to do that too. You, you, you lived in a critical household, and you inherited those, those generational sins. And, and maybe you'll pass them on. But you don't have to. You don't have to. There's freedom from those patterns of sin. There's freedom from those generational sins. Because if you know Jesus as Lord then you have been adopted into a new family. And this new family, no, it is not a household founded on criticism. It's a family rooted in grace where your father actually speaks well of you, to you, where your father says, I am well pleased with you. No, he's not exacting. He says, I delight in you. That's the kind of household we're in if you have come to faith in Christ. And it's not because you've lived up to God's expectations, but it's because you've received his grace. Unearned approval. 
And when you fail, what does James say? He gives more grace. You see, how do we often deal with people? The more they fail, the less grace we start giving them. Like, I've been too generous. I'm going to start holding back some of that grace and start to replace it with some criticism. We call it hard love, but it may, or tough love. It might not be tough love. Maybe it's just judgment. Well, God says as we fail, he actually gives more grace. What kind of father is this? And that's why, that's why speaking evil against one another is absolutely incompatible with faith in the gospel. In fact, we need to ask ourselves, if I see others through this this sharply uh, critical lens, what does that say about the way I see God? Listen, could it be that you're so critical of others Or or maybe uh, I'm so critical of that particular person. Could it be? Because deep down, it's how you think God views you. What, What I mean is that the way we judge others may be rooted in a deep insecurity. It's possible to be adopted into the family of God by grace, but to live day to day without a resting in the acceptance of our Father. Instead, we can feel like he's never quite satisfied with us. We, we can live as if feeling like our father looks at us with that, with that familiar look that we get from people when we let them down. Like our God is looking at us with that, with that mix of frustration and disappointment and anger. You see, we feel like we're constantly being evaluated by him, so we evaluate others. We believe, if we believe that we're a disappointment to him, we're constantly disappointed by others. We feel like he can barely tolerate us, so we can barely tolerate others. Look, when we, when we lack comfort in the approval of the Father, we will not allow others to experience the comfort of our approval, of our love. We'll hold it back from them because we think God is holding it back from us. We will always be evaluating. We'll always be judging. In fact, the most exacting and critical Christians are the most insecure in the Father's love. I believe that. Brother, sister, do you see in God a Father who delights in you, who adopted you fully aware of your past and your future failures? He took you in with all the baggage. He saw it. You couldn't hide any of it. And still he says, you are mine. And I delight in you. If so, if you see God that way, then then the experience of his love will melt your criticism into gratitude towards your sister, towards your brother, towards your spouse. Our ability not just to to tolerate brothers and sisters, but to actually appreciate them and encourage them, it's inseparably linked to what we believe about our Father. And don't take my word for it. The Bible tells us repeatedly that how we relate to others flows out of how we relate to God. How we view others flows out of our connection with God. Look at Ephesians 4, 32. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. 
You see, the more we realize what God has done for us in Christ, the more we internalize that and live out of that, the more tenderhearted and forgiven we'll be to people. Jesus said, as, as the Father loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Listen to that. Abide in my love. So Christ's love for us, it's like the Father's love for him. How do you describe that? It's eternal. It's unchanging. It's exuberant. It's accepting. It's generous. Christ's love for us is like the Father's love for him. And then, and then, and then just, just a moment later, do you know what Jesus said? He said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So in the way that the Father has loved Christ, and Christ has loved you, in that way, because you have experienced that love, love one another. And remember, he said, abide in my love. And the truth is that the less we abide in his love, the less we will rest secure in it. And the harder it will be to stop criticizing. The harder it will be to just stop judging people. But what if we learn, what if we learn to rest in his unending love? To, to rest in his utter delight in his children his constant affection for us. If we really believe the Father loves us like he loves his eternal Son, then we will begin to delight in and appreciate and we'll stop criticizing the people we claim to love. Father, help us, help us, help us. James wraps up by reminding us one more thing. He says, when, we're, when, we, when we speak evil against one another, we're judging one another. We're also judging God. And then at the very end, he reminds us, there's really just one judge. You see, how are we going to stop judging people? Here's part of it. We have to realize there's really only one judge. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you? to judge your neighbor. You see, James has shown us that beneath every critical spirit, there's this desire to take God's place as judge. And, and, and how does... But now now, that, now that's, that's pretty awful, isn't it? Under every critical spirit, there's this desire to trade places with God and to say, I can be a better judge than he is. And, and, and how would you think God would respond to that? How does God respond to that? Listen to what John Stott says, a 20th century British author and teacher. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. You see, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be in the judgment seat, and God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. You see, there's only one judge, and he's not me, and he's not you. And still, we want his job, and we think we're pretty good at it, but we're not. 
Back in James chapter 2, verse 4, James says that, that when, we, when we judge people, and we, we actually start, we become judges with evil thoughts, he says. He says our, our judgments, it, it's warped by our own pride and insecurity, our own biases. We, we end up speaking against people whom God has justified. But again, how does God respond to all that? We put ourselves where only he deserves to be in that judgment seat. In the, in the, in the, in the, in the seat of the judge, I should say. But what does he do? He sacrifices himself for us. And he puts himself where only we deserve to be. He allowed himself to be nailed to a cross in the place of self-righteous critics who keep trying to play judge. The only righteous judge, he took constant criticism. He was slandered about. His name was defamed. Why? So that critics like us could be cleared. He's the only one, he says, who was able to save or destroy. But what does he choose to do? He chose to save us. He could have destroyed us. We would have deserved it. He chose to save us. What grace. He never throws our failures in our faces. In fact, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He doesn't have them ready on file to bring out and rehearse to us when we've let him down again. Instead, he commends us. He encourages us. He speaks well of us. And when he confronts us in our sin, it's with that patient, compassionate love that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. New Hope, the more we rest in that reality, the more we will speak well of one another. In our minds and with our mouths. We're going to come to this table, the Lord's table, in a moment. And as we do, let's let go of our criticisms. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, if you know that he has taken your place, was criticized, slandered, and condemned in your place, then this is a perfect opportunity to let go of those criticisms. Let's, let's release people from the weight of our judgment. And let's receive what we have not earned from the only true judge, our only true Savior. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you we thank you for what you have done to give us a righteousness that's not our own. And we thank you, Father, that when you look at us, you, you see your children. And you don't even just see us. You see us and you see your eternal son. You see Christ and us in him and him in us. His righteousness covers us. So that when you look at us, you can delight. You can say, come close, come near, my beloved Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are willing to take our criticisms. 
our scoffing, our mocking, our undermining, exacting judgments. You are willing to take the penalty for all of that on yourself. So that now you can welcome us to your table with words of encouragement and words that heal us and words that transform us. Help us to rest in your love. Amen.